0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail we're talking vaccines. How are they developed and when will we finally develop one to once and for all rid the world of COVID-19? Pride of place on the wall of St George's Medical School in South London is a cowhide. And that cow was named Blossom. More than 200 years ago, Blossom roamed the pastures of a farm in Gloucestershire, and every day she'd be milked by a woman named Sarah. Now, milking by hand ain't a pretty job, as you can imagine, and one of the hazards Sarah had to put up with were a little pus-filled sores which would develop on her hands and arms. They were caused by a virus called cowpox. Now, one day in 1796, a doctor named Edward Jenner popped around with a bright idea. He wanted to scrape some of that pus out of Sarah's wounds and rub it into two small cuts on the arms of an eight-year-old boy, James Phipps. Bit of a tough sell, you'd think, but the world at the time was in a bit of a pickle. One in ten deaths in Britain was caused by a ferocious disease called smallpox. Jenner had observed people who worked closely with cows seemed to be curiously immune to the disease, and so he used the best methods of the time to test that theory. Over the following months, James Phipps was deliberately inoculated with smallpox more than 20 times. He never succumbed. And so the first vaccine developed against an infectious disease was born. Helen Patousas-Harris is an Associate Professor of Vaccinology at the University of Auckland, and I asked her to explain exactly what a vaccine
1: is. Oh, you can think of a vaccine as antiviral software that you might put on your computer where you sort of prepare your body to respond to something that could potentially be harmful. Uh, so, yeah, or like putting bug spray on before you go off into the bush.
0: What is a vaccine actually made out uh, of?
1: Very much. on the vaccine type because there's lots of different types but primarily it will contain a either a weakened form of the of the pathogen or it will contain some kind of fragment of the pathogen Um, either way uh, to get your body to pay attention to to that um, and make an immune response. The other things that might be in it um, are what called immune in, an immune enhancer so which might uh, assist the body to make a better immune response for example so and but everything else in the vaccine tends to be things like salts and uh and sugars and things like that
0: so is it kind of like i went down to the supermarket the other day and bought myself some vitamin pills so is it kind of like it's a it's a sort of mishmash of stuff that's good for you, along with a little bit of the disease that you're trying to make yourself immune to so that your body can get used to it.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, basically, uh, getting that immune response to happen way before you're uh, ever likely to need it if you do.
0: So that's how it works. You introduce a disease to your body so that the body can recognise it, and when that disease proper comes along your body is like, oh, no, we, we know what we're doing with this. We've seen this before. We know how to fight this it is off. It's about
1: sensing tiny molecular shapes. And pathogens, bugs, have uh, shapes that we recognise as foreign and our body moves to get rid of it. But it's very, very specific, which is why, um, you, you know, you can induce, uh, using a vaccine, you can induce this very specific Im- immune response that recognises that particular pathogen. And it, 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 it's very, very effective um, at getting rid of it should you come into contact with it.
0: So if we're injecting that into our bodies, let's take the measles shot, for example. If you get the measles vaccine, why don't you get the measles?
1: The, the virus, so, so the measles vaccine is an example of a live vaccine. And the, the virus that's used has been weakened, or the words are attenuated, it's been weakened. So it, it, can infect, it can infect you a little bit, but it can't cause disease. It sort of peters out. You're able to cripple the, the pathogen enough so it can't actually harm you.
0: How do they actually get made? Like, what is the scientific process for creating a vaccine?
1: Well, I guess it starts with um, deciding that you have a problem with some sort of disease and that you've identified what it is that causes the disease. And and once you've identified something, you sort of think, well, 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 do people who have that disease uh, get it again? Because if they seem to be immune afterwards, there's um, a very good clue to what you might need to do, and that is to look for what it is about the um, uh, human immune response that that stops the people from getting the disease again. So once you've done that, you look to create um, a vaccine using various different approaches, depending what you think might be most useful. Um, And sometimes there are many to stimulate the body to make the specific um, immune response against this pathogen. Once you've done that, you start, you know, you start in your laboratory, you start with uh, perhaps some animal models, uh, you progress from there until you get to a situation where you might have something that looks like you could start moving into uh, testing in humans and, and then begins a very long process.
0: Yeah, a very long process.
1: So you've got something that's looking pretty good in your lab, and you've got some, uh, probably got some animal models that you've tested this in, and it's looking encouraging. It looks like it produces the right kind of immune response, and it appears to be sort of safe. You don't, you know. So then you move to what's called a phase one study, and that includes uh, maybe a few tens of volunteers, human volunteers that are usually young and, and healthy people. And you test it on them, and what, you, what you're looking for is the ability of the vaccine to induce the right sort of immune response. You test the sort of dosing that you, you know, different, different doses of the product, and, uh, and you, you're very focused on safety. Uh, and so you're looking for a whole lot of issues with potential issues with safety. and if all that goes well, you can extend it to more people and that's called a phase two and in phase two you might have a few hundreds of people and you've probably figured out your dose so you're going to start um, you're giving it to more people you're looking again at safety and more people and you might even um, you might even randomize these people to receive vaccine or no vaccine and start looking at its ability to protect against disease, depending on the situation. If all of that goes well, then you can consider moving to what's called phase three. And in vaccine studies these days, that could involve tens of thousands of people. So during that time, you determine the vaccine, um, what's called efficacy or its ability to protect against disease, and you're able to um, examine uh, the safety in a lot more people. So by the time you've finished that, you've got information um, information about the vaccine in tens of thousands of people. You will have compared people who received the vaccine with people who did not receive the vaccine or received some kind of placebo or something else.
0: But time isn't the only currency we're short of when it comes to developing vaccines. They also cost well, actual currency.
1: It takes And it's also um, important to note that is very, very expensive, mind-bogglingly expensive.
0: Why is it expensive? Like, who foots the bill? Does it tend to be pharmaceutical companies, or is it is it countries, governments?
1: Yeah, well, by and large, and this is this is what's been our problem. Um, It's been it's been really left to the big pharmaceutical companies who take the financial risk, uh, because we're talking to bring, bring a vaccine normally. Uh, to market through that process is upwards of a billion dollars. Now, it can fail at any point. So uh, that's a lot of money to lose if you don't have a product at the end of it that you can sell. So you can see a lot of risk involved. So those processes will be undertaken so carefully and also so slowly. That, that That's one of the things that can draw out the time. As well as the fact that once you get to the end of it, you still have to make enough. You still have to actually make, um, upscale it to potentially hundreds of millions of doses, which is not the same as sort of small scale um, for clinical trials. So that's, that's, again, your next process.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, as anyone who's made peach chutney can testify, making it for 10 people is legit. Making it for 10 million people probably a little bit more difficult.
1: Exactly. You might not end up with any peaches in some of the batches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How does it work in terms of the division of labour? Like, does every country use its own scientists to try to come up with something? Do pharmaceutical companies go on a big sort of hiring binge of of scientists? How does that work? All
1: of those things for the first time ever. Um,
0: wow.
1: All of those things are in play at the moment. And that's that's quite remarkable to see. We've been kind of hampered by our old model where we we relied on on big pharma to do this. And uh, that's not very efficient and you can't really expect them to sort of take all the risks. And what happens when the di- disease disappears, which has happened in the past? You know, they develop a vaccine and suddenly uh, this happened with Ebola. You know, the disease evaporated, <laughs> thankfully, but there was, <laughs> there was a vaccine that they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get any further. The new model, this, this new model, and, you know, hopefully this is, you know, something that, that's really positive that comes out of this is the, the fact that you can actually do this in other ways. A couple of years ago, uh, or as of 2017, these limitations were real, You know, really of great concern. We could see that if we had an emerging disease like the one we've just seen, that we were going to be a bit stuffed. Uh, there was no way that we could sort of develop and produce a vaccine uh, in anywhere near the time that you're going to need to make a difference. So, there were some massive investments made uh, by a whole lot of entities, and it's uh, called the uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, or CEPI, and they, they sort of set about getting together a billion dollars, uh, and started investing in new technologies, uh, in, small, sort of in you know, small biotech, academia, and, and the sort of things that might enable us to get some vaccine turned around a lot faster. And so they'd made some progress in this field when COVID appeared. So now we've got small biotech companies, new technologies, and now we've got unprecedented um, collaborations. And that includes Big Pharma, but also all the other little players as well. I'm pleased to announce that Gilead now has an EUA from the FDA for remdesivir. A drug called chloroquine. And some people would add to it hydroxy, hydroxychloroquine. We hear a
0: lot, particularly out of the US, about, uh, perhaps optimistically, about medicines that were created for different illnesses, perhaps having applications against uh, COVID-19. The most uh, talked about is probably hydroxychloroquine um, or remdesivir. How does that work?
1: There's a huge amount of work looking at repurposing things that we already have available to us in the toolkit. We've got a lot of drugs. a mind-boggling amount of drugs. It's possible that some of them might have a, a use against against this virus. There's some that that are looking encouraging? And there's so it's very easy if you've got something existing already to repurpose it. It doesn't have to go. You know, you've already licensed it you've tested it already um wouldn't it be great if we had something off the shelf um as opposed to developing brand new things from scratch
0: does COVID-19, does it have characteristics which make it especially difficult to develop a vaccine for? Or is the period of time that this is taken? Because it has only been, what, four and a half months. I, I, is this pretty par for the course when it comes to developing a vaccine for a, a new illness? No,
1: this is just crazy fast. It, it's unprecedented. But before this, the fastest a vaccine was ever developed, you know, from scratch, was the mumps vaccine, and that's many decades ago.
0: The mumps vaccine was licensed in 1967 after about four years of development.
1: And recently, the Ebola vaccines uh, had been developed. It had taken them many years to develop them, but they actually got them through testing very, very quickly, which showed us uh, that these things can actually be be done. But no, this is unprecedented. You know, we're in a new we're in a new uh, a new space now with with what we can actually achieve. Right now, it is our great hope a vaccine for coronavirus. And today, scientists at the CSIRO are a step closer to a breakthrough.
0: At a research unit based in Flanders, scientists announced the discovery of a unique antibody that's capable of neutralising the virus that causes COVID 19. The source, a llama. Every now and then we kind of, you know, we wake up and we read the news that some obscure lab in, and, uh, and, you know, Tel Aviv or whatever has, has made a, a COVID vaccine breakthrough and everyone gets really excited. It feels to me like a good way to think about this maybe is as a sort of a vital piece of global infrastructure, global health infrastructure. And if you think about global, you know, physical infrastructure, things like the Suez Canal, they do take years to develop and you just have to accept that because you can't build a bloody canal in six months.
1: No, not unless you've got some sort of death star ray or something that
0: seems blast it. Once a vaccine is developed, Helen, who actually owns it?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, in this case, because we've got so many players, I think it's going to be very diverse. If you're, um, you know, big farmer will still own their own their own property. Maybe they're going to make this at no profit for a while, but they'll still own it. And anybody else who has ownership of it. But um, what's happening is that people are making their uh, technologies available to others. That's what we're seeing, and also if a vaccine is being funded by, for example, CEPI, who I mentioned earlier, um, they're doing this for for the world, particularly for uh, low income countries. So those things are less likely to be tied up in uh, intellectual property. I think you're going to see the whole gamut. But by and large, what you're seeing is most people publishing very quickly and sharing their learnings and also collaborating with others so they can pull their resources.
0: Now, you, you talked about issues of production, mass scale production before. If a company or a country invented a vaccine and it was effective, would we need to produce a dose of the vaccine for every person in the world to eradicate the disease?
1: Not everybody, but most of them. So you're going. Uh, bottom line, you're going to need billions of doses of vaccine.
0: Is it like making, you know, marinara sauce in a kitchen? You just <laughs> brew it up in a great big tub.
1: Yeah, right. And but I have mute. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> the facility, a vaccine production facility will cost you in the order of $1 billion. It's not for the faint-hearted. Um, so so you, you can't necessarily take a facility that's busy pumping out um, viral vector vaccines and suddenly start pumping out um, an activated vaccine. You know, that, ha- that would have to be adapted. So there's many facilities in the world, of course. India, for example, one of the biggest producers of vaccines for the world. There's so many facilities, but not enough. So uh, I understand Bill Gates is putting $7 billion to build seven facilities, build them now, knowing that some of them may not be uh, used.
0: So Yeah, okay. So you're prepared so to lose the bit- money.
1: So, so if you're prepared to lose the money, um, <laughs> you can... Um, You can start investing, but that's a big challenge that we're going to have to overcome, which is why I think, you know, if if a place has a capacity to manufacture at the standard required, which is very high, then, you know, you probably want them doing that.
0: Yeah, because, I, I mean, the, the 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 fact of the matter is that you can't... It's not like um, war production where you can just sort of tell Rolls-Royce to stop making cars and to start making, you know, rifles. Um, existing vaccines do still have to be made because there are still going to be flu seasons. So it's not that you can simply um, convert a facility to making a, a, a COVID vaccine because then it leaves imbalances with other vaccines. You, you have to sort of add the COVID production to what we're already producing, which is a huge ask.
1: Exactly. And you don't normally run off to to vaccinate, you know, the entire world's population. You're normally busy focused on, you know, two-year-olds or something.
0: That's a big that's a big old challenge, that's for sure. Oh, dear. Helen, just finally, and I mean, you know, we're, we're, of course, venturing into the realms of speculation here, but what's your best guess as to when we might be able to develop one? Are we talking months or are we talking years? I
1: think both, and I think it's probably the only – it is probably the only way we can really truly get out of this, out of this pickle. I've got several timelines. The first timeline is, is quite short. Uh, and I think it's the one we need to be, first of all, prepare for, and that is the potential for the first cab off the first cabs off the rank. All going well, could be towards the end of this year, and so you have to be ready for that um, because there's a lot to do. You can't just deploy them into the population without getting a whole lot of things ready. So that's the the very earliest. Then, of course, you've got to. Um, You've got to, uh, it'll work, you've got to make enough for people. So it's not going to be available to everybody right away, and, and so that's going to extend that out. And maybe the, sort of you're looking at earlier, maybe eighteen months. And I think one of the things we need to think about is, um, well, if you're making it yourself, you're probably going to have access to something earlier. India, we're, you know, we're, we're going to vaccinate our populations first. <laughs> They've already started making stuff. So um, you understand
0: that, and I think if that was us, we'd probably do the same. Wow. So, so we, this really is though. This is a long haul kind of thing. You know, the idea of there being a eureka moment and COVID, you know, being out of our system in time for the <laughs> out of society in time for the ski season in Queenstown. That is just we, you just got to recalibrate those expectations right now.
1: Well. I know. I mean, if we don't have COVID then you can go skiing in Queenstown, right? I believe you're going to be encouraged to do so. <laughs>
0: Indeed. That's a fair point, actually. But, but you know,
1: um, if just, just saying hypothetically that the vaccine that's been developed at Oxford uh, looks to be a winner and it comes up really well in terms of safety and effectiveness, a lot of places might hear themselves about pumping it out. So, You know, you might, you know, you might. It depends if they're already ready to go, and don't,
0: you know, have to start building the facility from scratch. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by Newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell, and thanks to Helen Petusis Harris. Kaki Tao.